Well, good morning. Glad to have you all with us this morning. If you're joining us in person, if you're joining us online, we're glad that you're here. Um, hopefully, when we see you all again this time next week, everybody still has all ten fingers attached. Um, you know, if, if you're like I was when I was younger, we tended to improvise with some of the uh, fireworks, uh, meaning we kind of made our own by combining existing fireworks. And uh, uh, we did one thing one time where we took like 10 boxes of sparklers and electrical taped them all together because somebody said it, it'll be like a stick of dynamite. Like, well, that sounds really cool. And, you know, we were teenagers, so we didn't know that that really wasn't that cool of an idea. But we tried like five or six of them, and they were all duds. So then the one that actually did work, we were totally caught off guard. And one of my friends thought it would be a good idea to put a coffee can on top of it. So it was cool because we saw the can go up, and then we started hearing pieces of the can land around us. And one of my friends found a piece of it sticking out of her tree the next day. I'm like, okay, that was probably the worst thing that we've ever done. So I wouldn't advise that, okay? If you want to improvise... Um, you know, don't put a coffee can on top of it or anything that could become shrapnel. Um, just wanted to throw that out there. That's my pastorly word of wisdom for the 4th of July for you today. Hey, got a question for you as we get ready to jump in. Question that I'll throw out there, and, and this may be something you've already thought about, maybe not. Maybe a question that you don't really like to think about, but the question I want to ask you is this. What do you ultimately one day want to be remembered for? And by asking that, I mean... When you breathe your last breath and you move on, you go to heaven, and your body is either put in the ground or, or, or turned to ashes, what do you want to be remembered for? That's a question that a lot of folks, especially if you're younger, probably haven't really stopped to think about yet, but ultimately we all are going to be remembered for something. You might get remembered because you're a, a very generous and charitable person, or maybe you're remembered because you're the opposite of that. Or maybe you're remembered because you're a very kind and warm person. Or maybe you're remembered because you're the opposite of that. Or you're remembered for being a hard worker who is always willing to help others. Or again, for the opposite of that. What do you want to be remembered by? I don't think any of those things are, are bad things to be remembered for. To look back and go, man, I miss him. He was the hardest worker. He was, man, he was always willing to help somebody else. He was always willing to, to give what he had. Remember that phrase, give the shirt off of his back, you know. We like those. And those aren't bad things. Those are good reasons to be remembered by one day. But if you're a Christian, if you, if you follow Christ, ultimately, the one thing that I want us to all be remembered for is the faith that we showed. That we had faith to stand strong when times were tough. That we had faith to continue following and trusting in God when things didn't make sense or when the world around us seemed unfair or when the world around us seemed difficult. That we had faith. There's an entire chapter in the Bible that just talks about faith. I call it the by faith chapter because it's in Hebrews chapter 11. And what we see in this is, first off, we see an example of faith, what it looks like. The writer of Hebrews defines it for us by saying that faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. I, I love the phrasing there because if you're just hoping for something, you, you can't have a true confidence, like a full confidence. You have a wishful confidence, but if it's just hope, you can't have that full confidence. But then the second part, assurance about what we, what we don't see. Some translations will say evidence of what we don't see. If you've ever like, watched a, you know, a, a trial documentary or been on trial... Could you imagine your attorney walking up if you're on trial going, we have evidence, but we're not going to let you see it. Just trust us. That's basically what they're saying faith is here. 
It's being certain of something that you can't see. And the writer says this, and then he goes on in verse 2 to say, this is what the ancients were commended for. And then the rest of the chapter, he commends all of the ancients for their faith. By ancients, I mean the people of the Old Testament. Hebrews is a first, uh, first century letter that was written. So he goes back and talks about all the people from the Old Testament. He talks about the faith of Abel and Enoch and, and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, all of the patriarchs and kind of the founding fathers, if you will, of Israel. And then in verse 22, as he's talking about what these guys did by faith, he says, mentions Joseph. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. Now, this is interesting to look back at because we haven't gotten to this part of the story of Joseph yet. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is that Joseph, when he was about to, to die, when he was at the end of his days, he talks about the exodus that's going to happen 400 years later. Something that's going to take place centuries from now that even his children and his children's children and probably even their children and maybe the next generation won't live to see. And what's Joseph doing? He's getting them ready for it. Because what did every aspect of Joseph's life revolve around? Preparing people for something. Not worrying so much about himself, but making sure his people were taken care of. Because what happens ultimately, if you don't know the story is that when you turn the page from Genesis 50 to the book of Exodus, you may not realize this, but almost 400 years, actually a little over 400 years take place in those first few verses. And it goes on to say that Joseph and his brothers all died. And that eventually, it says in verse 8, it says a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. And this king saw that at this point, now the Israelites outnumber the Egyptians, and they continue to grow in number, and now they're a threat because if they ever decide they want to get hostile or they want to, you know, take up arms and fight, Egypt can't fight them all off. So they get a little proactive, and instead they put the Israelites into slavery. They oppress them. They make life hard for them and, and make them their, their own servants. And it's, again... 400 years after this verse right here that finally Moses comes and, and delivers the people of Egypt, or the people of Israel from Egypt. But Joseph, looking forward, is thinking through this. He's preparing his people by telling them about this. And it leads to the question, what's the ultimate impact of Joseph's life? What's the ultimate impact of the life that Joseph lived? We're wrapping up our, our series today. that We've been talking about Joseph the last several weeks. And what's the ultimate impact? Last week we talked about how his brothers came to, to, to see him and he was able to forgive them. But when we talk about the impact of a life, it kind of is a follow-up question to what we asked earlier, what do you want to be remembered for? The impact of Joseph's life, I don't think it's selling it short to say that, that we are the impact of Joseph's life. I mean, if Joseph doesn't do what Joseph did, the nation of Israel never even happens. The people of Israel never happen. Now, again, God has a plan, yes, and that plan was a divine plan that worked out, yes. But Joseph, at every turn, was thinking about those people, God's people, not about himself. And I think often when we look at that question about impact, we might ask ourselves that, what kind of impact do I want to leave someday? What kind of impact do you want to leave someday? We're all going to leave one. Is it going to be positive or negative? Or is it just going to be altogether forgettable? 
What kind of impact do you hope to live? Because if you live a positive impact, you live one that, that impacts the kingdom and the world around you for God, folks, you'll outlive your life. You'll, you'll outlive the date that's going to go on your grave one day because your legacy will live on. And I think sometimes it's easy to, to get this idea of impact and legacy, and we think about people who are successful in life and what they leave behind. Maybe somebody who had great wealth, and so they left it all for charitable purposes. They started a foundation that gives scholarships to underprivileged kids, or they, that you know, pumps money back into a community that is a, a struggling community. And we think about the impact that they leave. Or we think about somebody who has fame, and they use their fame to build other people up. They're not about themselves. They're using their fame to go visit kids in hospitals or, or to visit the underprivileged and let them know, somebody cares about you. You're not a nobody. That's great. I'm glad that people do that. But it's easy to think, if I had that, I could leave an impact. Most of us don't have that. Most of us probably weren't born with the, the silver spoon in our mouths or, or the gifts to put a silver spoon in our kids' mouths even. Most of us were just born with what God gave us to give. And I think sometimes it's easy to look at the people who have certain advantages and think they can leave an impact and I can't. That's not how it works. It really truly isn't. To leave an impact, we can all do this. To leave a legacy, we all can do it. And I think the way we do it, to leave a powerful legacy, is simply to view the craziness of life as a challenge to overcome instead of a crisis to avoid. And too often, that's what we do when the chaos comes, and it will. We either cower from it, or we approach it the wrong way, or we just avoid it and, and hope that it passes. But the question is, can we view it instead as a challenge? We've talked a couple of times in this series about perspective. How do you view the things that come your way? How do you view the things that, that are thrown your way? In the story of Joseph here, we've seen him, just to kind of recap this story, we've seen Joseph go from a privileged and entitled and probably spoiled 17-year-old that was despised and hated by his brothers, that he was rejected and, and sold into slavery by his brothers. And then when he's taken to Egypt, he's purchased by a, a very powerful Egyptian official named Potiphar. And over the course of time, he actually elevates to running Potiphar's house until Mrs. Potiphar comes along and wants Joseph, and he tells her no, and it makes her mad, so she accuses him of attempted rape, and he's thrown into prison. And while he's in prison, he gets the attention of Pharaoh by by helping a couple of Pharaoh's servants, and then ultimately gets Pharaoh's attention by helping Pharaoh, by interpreting dreams and telling him, hey, this is going to happen, and here's a plan you need to follow. And, and Pharaoh does it. So Joseph's the prime minister of Egypt, and then the famine hits, and, and everything he planned for works perfectly. And eventually, as we found out last week, that famine impacts his father and brothers and everybody back home in, in the land that will eventually become Israel. So his... Family all comes and settles there in Egypt. 75 of them in all is what it tells us in the book of Acts. They all come and settle there in Egypt. And, and that's where they're at. And to kind of pick up our story today, we're going to jump into the very end of Genesis and, and look at a story that takes place over about three chapters, kind of like last week's did as well too. But for kind of some context here, by the time we get to the end of this chapter in this story, his family has now been with him in Egypt for 17 years. It's been 17 years since his father Jacob came. His father is now near the end of his life, near the end of his days, and he's lost his ability to see. 
You know, he, he's and, over 130 years old, and he's lost his ability to see anything. And at the end of his life, he does what a father in this culture did. He gives his children a blessing. Specifically, he gives his sons a blessing. Now, if you don't know what this is all about, it's not like it is in our culture. We think about the word blessing or bless, and often we use bless in one major context to reply to somebody who's just had some kind of a bodily function. You know, normally a sneeze, we say bless you. Or where I'm from, we'll say bless your heart with people. That's not always a compliment, by the way, if you don't know that. <laughs> bless your heart is okay for we love you, but that was really stupid. Like, that's, that's the nice way to say that. Okay? But here to give a blessing, a father would place his hand on the head of his son and speak words over him. And this was like almost a legal act of giving the son his inheritance right then and there. And however the blessing worked, you would take however many, many sons you had plus one, and you would divide that. So if you had five sons, you would have five shares of your inheritance. You would actually make it six shares because the oldest gets two. The oldest gets a double portion. And so, again, kind of think through this. Here's Jacob, very wealthy man. He has 12 sons. I'm guessing, this is, this is total speculation on my part here, I'm guessing Joseph, it was always assumed, would get that double portion that was supposed to go to the oldest. That's just a, I don't know, that's just a guess because he was the favorite. You know, I guess maybe why his brothers hated him so much. But as his father gets ready to start blessing his sons, he does indeed call Joseph first. But he does something interesting here. Because instead of blessing Joseph, he actually blesses Joseph's two sons instead. And so kind of by blessing Joseph, he's blessing them and not just blessing them, but he's going to give one of Joseph's sons that double portion. So just kind of think through all this. And what happens here is Joseph comes forward to get the blessing with his sons. And he brings them with him. And in Genesis 48, verse 8, it says, When Israel, that's, that's Jacob, he's, God's given him a new name, the name Israel, which is where the name, the nation of Israel comes from. When he saw the sons of Joseph, he said, Who are these? They are the sons God has given me. Uh, in, in this land, Joseph replied to his father. Then Israel said, bring them to me so that I may bless them. So again, he's going to give the blessing here, and he's going to give the double blessing to one of Joseph's sons. So Joseph brings his two sons. He's got Manasseh, his oldest son, in his left hand, Ephraim, his younger son, in his right hand, because he's coming towards his father. So by bringing Manasseh on his left side, he actually puts him on Jacob's right side. And because Jacob can't see, he puts his sons there. He takes his father's hands and he places them, the right hand on Manasseh's head, the left hand on Ephraim's head. Here they are, father. And guess what Jacob does? He swaps his hands. He swaps his hands and he puts the right hand on the younger brother's head and the left hand on the older brother's head. If you don't know the story of Jacob, here's why that's significant. Decades earlier... His father, Isaac, when he was about to die, also lost his eyesight. Jacob was a twin, but he was the younger of the two twins, and his mother favored him, so together his mother and him tricked their father into giving Jacob the double portion. He got the double portion from his father that his older brother was supposed to get. Now flash forward. And Jacob switches his hands. Joseph's not trying to trick his father, and his father's not trying to trick him. 
And Jake, Joseph runs up, no, no, dad, you can't do that. That's not how it works. You've got to put your right hand on Manasseh's head, your left hand on, this, on Ephraim's head. That's how the blessing works. And look at verse 19. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too, talking about Manasseh, will become a people, and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he, and his descendants will become a group of nations. Think about this for just a minute. Because again, in this culture, this is a massive, massive thing. Now, you think about it where you're at. Okay, If you and your siblings are all kind of on even plane, and your parents leave you an inheritance, and your younger sibling gets more than you, it's probably not going to set real well with you. You think, hey, if one of us is going to get more, it probably should be me. Because, you know, I had to deal with them longer than you did, so I should get more than, than you get, right? That's what I tell my parents all the time. Like, I had to deal with you longer than Kate did, so I should get more than he does, right? But think about this for just a moment here. How many of you have a younger sibling? And when that younger sibling was given attention that you weren't, it stung. Or maybe more specifically, your younger sibling was giving praise that you thought you deserved, has stung. Maybe your younger sibling was the favorite, and that stung too. I've got one younger brother, uh, he's four years younger, and, and my parents were great as far as not saying one thing to, to one of us compared to the other, but growing up, we were both good at different things, and we were both bad at opposite things too, and there was a long stretch where the things that we were both good at was what the other one actually wanted to be good at, and the things we were good at, we didn't care as much. Specifically, Kate was better at sports, I was better at school. And when you're a kid, you don't care if you're good at school. You want to be good at sports, right? So he got the attention because he was on a baseball team, and they traveled and, and always played tournaments. And, man, it just so happened they played tournaments this time of year in July. And guess who has a birthday this time of year in July and got to spend it with his younger brother and all of his friends, usually at a McDonald's somewhere at a baseball tournament. I'm not bitter or anything. It's fine. Okay? I moved past it. <laughs> but... You saw, you, I would just see, I would see the attention that, that it would get. A lot of our summer revolved around him. And again, my parents didn't like, like lay it on me. I mean, it wasn't anything bad looking back at it. They did the best that they knew how to do in those situations. But as a kid, you see it. Like you just kind of see that's where the priority tends to go. Uh, our, our kids are kind of starting to go through this a little bit. Because my, my two oldest, my two girls are getting to the ages where they're going to start getting competitive with each other. At least my oldest is. My middle one is too oblivious to know that there's a competition to be had. She'll be there soon. But the things that they both care about, Elsie, my oldest, is super, super passionate about, Amelie is great at, without even trying. And Elsie notices. And one of them in particular is soccer. Elsie wants to be so good at it. And she's, she's learned a lot. She came a long ways this last year. Amelie had just a phenomenal year. You know, I, I say this with, with humility, was maybe the best player in her league this year. I mean, just crazy. We, they had one game that they, they played at the same time. It was a Sunday afternoon, and I was with Elsie at the Garmin Complex on K10. Jennifer's with Amelie down at her field in Olathe. And uh, so we were texting back and forth during the game. We had been at Amelie's game the day before. My parents were with me, and we had Titus with us at our game. And Elsie played the best game she's ever played. She's playing in the midfield. She's making good passes. She's moving where she's supposed to be. She's defending well. Just played a really, really good game, like helped set up one of their goals that they scored. They lost. I think they lost 3-1. to one. 
Amelie's game. Jennifer's texting me like literally every minute or two. One to nothing, two to nothing, three to nothing. They eventually lost count of the score of Amelie's game because they just, they just couldn't stop. The other team couldn't stop them from scoring. And I said, how many goals did Amelie score? She goes, I don't know. I lost count. I'm like, oh, this is going to go well. And she goes, oh, and she did this really cool spin move to score her last goal, and her coach is buying them ice cream because of that. So we get in the car, and, and my, I'm with my mom and my stepdad. We're driving, and my mom knew what was going on. Bob didn't. He was sitting down a little further. Uh, he knew that they were winning. So I'm telling Elsie, you played a great game. You did such a great job today. I'm proud of you. Good job. And Bob, you know, Bob just innocently enough, he's, he's in and out of the conversation, innocently enough goes, Hey, did Amelie score any more goals? Uh, what was what the final one up being? Last I heard, it was like ten to nothing, and Elsie just melts, just melts in the back seat. And I said, uh, "Yeah, she scored a few more. I don't know how many." And Elsie goes, "They couldn't even count them." I said, "Yeah," and my mom, innocently enough too, didn't she do some cool spin move? I said, "Yeah," and I think her team gets ice cream. And again, Elsie just, <laughs> my team doesn't get that. I didn't say that. That was her coach. Your coach didn't say that. Well, then we get to the restaurant, and I'm trying. I keep telling Elsie, you played a great game. I'm trying to tell Amelie, you played a great game, and I'm proud of you too. But Elsie hears, well, you're proud of her because she scored all those goals. You're proud of her because she did this spin move. Nobody ever even taught me how to do that spin move. And Amelie, just as innocent as she could be, goes, I'll teach you how to do it. I could have looked Elsie dead in the eye and say, we no longer love you and we're going to give you to a new family and it would have gone over better <laughs> than her sister saying that to her. But as a parent, you're in that moment, what do you do? Because you've got two kids who both did good and it was completely different. And my kids here, when I tell this one, I'm very proud of you. She hears, well, why aren't you proud of me? And as a parent, those are hard times to navigate because what you say, and more specifically, how you say it matters. And we've had a lot of these, these moments, and I'm just praying, God, give me the right words to say because I'm patient with my children to a point. And then at some point, I just can't handle it anymore. And in those moments, I'm like, you need to leave before I say something that you're probably not going to like because you pushed me past the point. You're not letting me help you, so just move on. And I've got to be so careful with that because here's the truth of the matter. Your words create worlds. What you say matters. And how you say it matters. God in the beginning spoke the world into existence in Genesis chapter 1. He creates the heavens and the earth by speaking them into existence. And then a few verses later, he looks over at the, at, at the Son and the Spirit with him and says, Let us create man in our image. We're created in his image, so we have the power to speak worlds into existence. Not literal, physical worlds. I can't say, tree, grow, you know, and there it comes. But what we say builds a world around somebody. And think about this, because maybe you haven't realized the power of your words, especially if you're a parent, or maybe if you're a person of influence. I think about this, not, not to speak highly of myself, but as a pastor, I've got to be careful how I say things to people. Because I've, I've said things before, and people are like, oh, that was rude. Like, I didn't even realize I said it. It's just the way it came out. I didn't catch it. You know, and that's on me for, for saying it that way. Your words create worlds. 
And here's what you have to be aware of. You understand this more when they're said to you, maybe more than when you say them. But words that are spoken over you often become reality for you. Somebody tells you, you're not pretty enough. You're not smart enough. You hear that enough. Guess what? You believe it. That's who you are now. You're the girl who's just not as pretty or the guy who's just not as smart. You're the guy who just can't do it quite as much. When I taught high school, it used to break my heart. Parents would want us to fix their kids. I'm like, you spent 16 years making them this way. By telling them that they're the king of the world, so how can I humble them? By telling them they're the greatest thing ever. Or the flip side, telling them they're nothing. And you want us in nine months to fix them and change them. No, they've heard all this for so long that this is their truth now. This is who they are now. And we understand that this is, this is the world. And maybe this was you. You were told those words that many times over and over that it became real and true for you that you weren't good enough, that you weren't pretty enough, that you weren't skinny enough, that you weren't smart enough, that you weren't fast enough or, or, or tall enough or, or whatever. You weren't something enough. Or maybe you were too much of something else. You're too this or you're too that. You don't matter enough. And the more you hear it, the more it becomes your reality. And as parents especially, if you're, if you're a parent with young kids, if you're not a parent yet, hear me, because you, if you are one day, I want you to understand this. What you say matters. Look at how Jacob addresses his sons here at the end of his days. He's giving all of his sons the blessings. In Genesis 49, you read all of them. And he comes to his firstborn son, Reuben. This is the one that saved Joseph's life, by the way, by not letting the other brothers kill him. But in Genesis 49, verse 3, he says, Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. Like, that's a pretty good start. Like, if you've got a dad, you'd probably want your dad to say this about you, right? And look what he says next. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. Okay, that, that just got very real. <laughs> he says, for you went up into your father's bed onto my couch and you defiled it. Now, the long story short here is Reuben took one of the concubines of Jacob and took her to Jacob's bed. And I'll let you use your imagination for what happened with the rest of the story. And Jacob didn't forget that. And so he tells Reuben, you're not going to amount to anything anymore. You've been great to this point. You're not going to excel. Well, if you don't know the, this part of the story, after the brothers all die, their family lines become the tribes of Israel. And when they go centuries later to conquer the promised land, the tribe of Reuben stays outside the promised land, just on the west side of the river Jordan, in what is modern-day Jordan today, just across the Dead Sea, never amounted to anything. Very insignificant tribe in the nation of Israel. Now look what he says to his son Judah. Judah, who, by the way, has another history. Judah, in verse 10, he says, "...the scepter will not depart from Judah." Nor will the ruler's staff from between his feet until he, to whom it belongs, shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Judah's got a backstory too, and it might be worse. It might be worse than Reuben's. Because Judah's story, remember when we skipped a chapter in Genesis and I said it'd make a great R-rated movie, but probably not something you'd tell your kids. Judah has, gets married and has three sons. The oldest marries a girl by the name of Tamar. And it says that his oldest son was evil, so God struck him down. In this culture, if, if, if a 
man died and was married and they hadn't produced an heir yet, then the woman would go to his brother so that they could potentially have an heir within the same family line. So the middle brother gets Tamar now. He wants no part of Tamar. And he goes and, and he goes to bed with her, but he refuses to get her pregnant. He goes to extreme measures to make sure that won't happen. Again, you can read Genesis 38 if you want the details. But because of that, God strikes him down, views him as evil and strikes him down. So Joseph, or Judah sends Tamar back to her parents says, my youngest son's not old enough to give you yet. When he is, I'll call you, and, and you can come, and, and we'll arrange for that marriage. Until then, put on your widow's clothing and go back to your parents. So she does that, and then Judah forgets, forgets about her. And one day, sometime later, he's in town tending his flocks. Tamar finds out that he's there. His wife has now since passed away. She takes off her widow's clothing, puts on a veil of a prostitute, and goes down and seduces him, and he takes her to bed, and she becomes pregnant. And she goes, what are you going to pay me? And he goes, well, I'll give you a goat, but I don't have it with me right now. So as collateral, hold on to this scepter, and I'll be right back. He gives him a scepter. Well, she vanishes. Years later, he finds out that she's pregnant. Or not years later, months later, finds out that she's pregnant. He doesn't know what's happened, that that was her. And he orders her to be put to death. And she shows up and she goes, well, the man who got me pregnant gave me this and hands him his scepter back. And what's Judah do? He takes her home. And he says, I wronged you because I didn't do what I promised to do for you. And he takes her home and he, he, he takes care of her and he raises the sons. He rectifies the wrong. He makes it right. Last week we talked about when Joseph's brothers come to Egypt and, and J Jacob wouldn't let the youngest son Benjamin go. And Joseph demands to his brothers, bring him back or, or you all will starve to death. And they basically force their father's hand. If we don't take him, we're all gonna die anyway. And, and Jacob's like, no, I'm not letting him out of my sight. I don't want him to die. And one brother says, if he dies, you can have my life as, as payback. Guess which brother that was? Judah, willing to give his life to save his people. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like somebody we read about later on in the New Testament? By the way, guess which tribe Jesus came from? The lion of the tribe of Judah. They took these words that were spoken over them, and one of the brothers was able to overcome them, and one of the brothers was not. Go back to the sons of Joseph, the tribe of Ephraim, that was given that double blessing, eventually amounted to nothing. The tribe of Manasseh, they're the only tribe that had two territories. They doubled in size. They had two territories because there was one spot of land that nobody else wanted, so Manasseh's like, I'll take it. I'll put my people here. They had one on each side of the river. But you hear words, and the question is, what do you do with them? I think it's a two-part question. What do we do with our words and what do we do with somebody else's words? Words can build up and words can tear down. And you can't control what somebody else says to you, but what you can control is the volume by which you hear it. And that's not always easy to do, but we can turn it down and occasionally we can just hit the mute button on somebody else's words that are coming to us. And when you do that, you start to rise above that chaos and craziness and start to leave an impact and a legacy that will last. 
And there's a very simple solution on how to do this. The simple solution to turn down the volume of the world is to turn instead to one name, that line of the tribe of Judah. You turn to Jesus and you give him your everything that you have. And you may say, how do, how do I do this? It's, I think it's very, very simple. The first thing you need to do to turn to Jesus is get baptized. If you've not done this, Man, come talk to us. We would love to help you out with this. You can put on a connection card, and we'll be in touch with you this week. And we can do a baptism here anytime. It doesn't have to be on a Sunday morning. It can be anytime, anytime in the week. Just let us know. But get baptized. When you're baptized, as we sang earlier, that song, Graves into Gardens, you go into a grave and come out of a garden. You go into a pit and you symbolize the death and the burial and resurrection and then you come out of a pit just like Joseph did centuries earlier when he was thrown into a pit called prison. And Jesus was centuries after him when he was into a pit called hell. When he went to take the keys away from Satan. And just as Joseph came out of prison into the kingdom of Pharaoh, Jesus came out of, out of that pit through the empty tomb and back into heaven, we come out of this pit with a new name. The, the name of a son or daughter of God. And we bear his name when we call ourselves Christians. So we get baptized. Number two, you give Jesus the lordship of your life. You let him have complete authority and ownership over you because he paid the price for you when he went to the cross. We'll take communion here in a few moments and we'll remember that. But that's why being together is so valuable because we get to celebrate this together and we get to help each other as we give him the lordship of, of, of our lives. We're all walking at a little bit different pace, but walking together helps each other out. Being involved in community and small groups, serving together, being the church helps give him the lordship of your life. Give him authority over every decision that you make. And number three, glorify God in all that you do. Glorify him in everything. If you can live a life, its entire purpose is a life intended to bring honor and glory and worship to God, that's a life that will rise above everything this world can throw at it. That's a life that's so fully and deeply immersed in our heavenly Father that, that the world cannot chop you down, that you can tune it out. And not only that, it's a life that can lead to that faithfulness that leaves a legacy that will leave an impact for generations to come. There's one thing that we all have in common. It's that every one of us will one day have an end date on our time. The question is, what is it going to look like when you're gone? My, my grandpa was the absolute opposite of a person born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He grew up on a, a, a farm on a map dot town in southwest Missouri in the 20s. And when he was about 11 years old or so, his dad passed away. And his older brothers took over the farm and said, Dick, we need you. So he quit school in sixth grade and went to work on the farm. And that's what he did, because that's what he had to do, because that's what the family needed him to do. So a man with a sixth grade education eventually grows up and meets my grandma, and they get married, and they start a family, and they move about 45 minutes away to my hometown. And for a man with a sixth grade education... He was willing to do whatever came across his hands. He didn't even know God yet. He didn't follow God yet. I don't know if he even believed in God yet. Didn't grow up with a Bible in his hands. So he 
got whatever he could. Learned to become a mechanic and worked on Studebakers for years back in the 50s. Then eventually went to work at a, at a tire manufacturing plant in our hometown until he retired there in the 80s. But for a man with a limited understanding of a lot of the way things worked in the world, man who had zero interest in learning about technology and computers. In fact, one of my favorite conversations I had with him, I was doing some video production work at the time, and he asked me one night, well, how does it work? You know, when you use your camera, how does it work that it turns out to be this video? I'm thinking, there's no way I can explain this that he's going to understand. So I went step for step as slow as I could. He looked at me the whole time, never broke eye contact. When I was done, he goes, well, if you need somebody to build a box to put all in, and I can do that for you. You know, that was his mentality. But this man who learned from the Bible, he found, found Christ when he was in his 40s. Probably close, about, actually about my age, right around 40. And he went off the high dive straight into the deep end of the pool and took his family with him. They were already there, but he pulled them even deeper. And that man with a sixth grade education, whose knowledge of the Bible basically was church on Sundays and what he read throughout the week, he built a legacy that now three daughters, six grandkids, and I've lost count of the great-grandkids, 13, 14, something like that. Titus is the youngest of that generation. Now into the fourth generation, and, and probably won't be too many years, we're starting the fifth, because my oldest cousin in that generation is married. And the number of us that not are just following Christ, but are faithfully devoted to ministry as well, too, this man who would have never stepped foot on a Bible college campus, this is what he built. He didn't give us financial inheritance. He didn't give us all this stuff. He taught us things. And it's things that I catch myself teaching my kids sometimes without realizing it. He was, he was gone for, gosh, I think six years before Elsie was born. My kids will never meet him this side of heaven. But I'll catch myself saying something every once in a while, and it's one of his sayings. Like, where did that come from? That's silly. I said, that's, that's Grandpa Martin. That's, that's me opening my mouth and him coming out. Those impacts, you have no idea how deep they will go. And it's my hope, it's my hope that my kids continue to get that from me, that their kids will get that from him and on, and on, and on. And that the generations that start being born after I'm gone are still getting that. Not just the quirky sayings, maybe not just certain elements of his personality or his work ethic or, or whatever, but that spiritual foundation that was buried deep inside me when I was a kid. That's an impact. That's an impact and a legacy that's built on faith because he didn't allow the world to get the best of him. He stayed focused on what God had promised him. Joseph, when he wraps up his story, he looks back at his brothers, and after his father has died, his brothers think, okay, Joseph was just playing nice as long as dad was here, but now, now Jacob's dead and we've buried him, and now Joseph's really going to come after us. And they beg and they plead with him, no, hey, dad would not want you to do this to us. And Joseph's like, dude, chill. That's not why I'm here. And what does he tell him at the end of the story in Genesis 50? Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, 
But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Can you get to a point where you can say that same thing? Can you navigate the detours of life and the trials of life where you can honestly, earnestly, sincerely say that same thing? That's what a legacy looks like. That's what an impact looks like. So here's a takeaway challenge for you today. It's very simple. Let God take over your story so that you can leave a legacy that impacts the kingdom for generations to come. And in doing that, you will outlive your life. Let's pray. Father, we're so, so thankful that you give us the examples to look at. The example of Joseph, always staying true to you, God, in the midst of trial after trial and difficulty after difficulty. But God, you, give, you, you gave him the wisdom to make decisions that weren't focused on himself and what's best for me, but it was always, always, always focused on those around him even on helping those who had hurt him, even on being there. He knew it was bigger than him. God, help us to have that similar mentality. God, help us to make a a legacy, not so that we can be remembered because we're anything special, but because it will bring honor and glory to you in everything. God, help us to redeem our stories that we have that might be painful or difficult or rough because they're ultimately gonna benefit your kingdom and somebody else who's struggling in it. God, we're so thankful for Jesus, for the one who is willing to pay it all so that we could experience you. God, we're so grateful for him. We pray in his name. Amen.